With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So, Tom, it's the English festival season. We've had Glastonbury. We've had the Goodwood Festival of Speed. And now the big one, the big festival of Grand Prix at Silverstone. It's, it's my favorite time of year, Damon. Of course, two icons. When I, when I think of Silverstone, two icons, yourself and Nigel Mansell. And uh, you caught up with Nigel at the weekend, didn't you? Yes, I met uh, Nigel, who, uh, who was on top form. Absolutely brilliant to see him there and being celebrated uh, for his uh, world championship, which was 1992, wasn't it? And when you saw him driving the Williams FW14B of 1992, did you say to him, yeah, that, that's my car, Nigel. I helped develop that. There's no I in team, Tom. <laughs> we know that. I did what I was called. I think I did the donkey work, basically, is what I did with uh, Paddy Lowe on that car. So I did all the experimental stuff, I think. But um, Nigel wrung its neck. He got every last ounce of juice out of that car and um, deserved to be world champion. Yeah, yeah. And lovely to see him and that car going up the hill at Goodwood. But... Damon, as you say, it is British Grand Prix week. Formula One is heading back to Silverstone, the track where the World Championship began on the 13th of May, 1950. It's, of course, where Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen dramatically collided last year. But, Damon, far, far more important than any of that, Silverstone is where a certain British driver achieved a career first. Nigel Mansell wins the 1992 British Grand Prix in terrific style. Mansell wins, Patrese second, the Benettons of Brundle and Schumacher move ahead of McLaren in the Constructors' Championship. And Nigel Mansell, now let's see as he is followed very, very appropriately by Damon Hill, who has just finished his first Grand Prix. Big moment. Big moment, Damon. I, we ought to add, I finished, but I was five laps behind. Five laps. Think about it. I was lapped five times by Nigel Mansell on his way to win the British Grand Prix. And every time I, looked, I got a blue flag and I saw Nigel coming, I thought, oh my God, get out of the way quick. Well, I didn't have to get out of the way quick. He was so much faster than me. But um, I crossed the line absolutely just behind him and, the, and it was a track invasion. Some guy ran out in front of me. They saw Nigel cross the line. And then decided that we're going to celebrate early and ran onto the track and right in front of my car. We didn't get round to the whole end of the lap. We got as far as a club corner, which is now where the, the last corner is at Silverstone. And there was a track invasion. Well, what happened then? What do you do? Do you just abandon? Yeah, we had you to abandon shit. In the Brabham, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, literally we got mobbed. He got, he got mobbed. I didn't get mobbed, but he got mobbed. And he couldn't get any further. He had to switch off and then get carried aloft and borne aloft and taken to a security uh, um, transport thing um, van and then taken to the podium but um, yeah it was bedlam it was incredible <laughs> and what did you do did you just have the long walk back to the pit lane I'm not sure no I think I jumped in the van with him I, I can't remember exactly but it's a bit vague but um, yeah I think we all got a lift back yeah they all uh, collected us up and there was fans you know wanting to get in the van with us and stuff it was uh, 
all a bit mad, but very, very exciting and uh, and a terrific celebration. Right. So that was your first finish in Formula One, happened to be the British Grand Prix. When was your first visit to Silverstone with the old man? I can't honestly remember, Tom, because I mean, don't forget, I was born in 1960 and my dad won the world championship in 62. So I've probably been going there in a pram since before I can really remember. But I do remember knocking about the paddock when I was very young. And it was just, a, it, it was an airfield. It literally was an airfield when we started going there. And there was a few boxes, commentary boxes, and people parked on the grass. You could fly in. I think um, there, weren't, there weren't so many helicopters back then, but quite a few people started flying in with aeroplanes. And then, so people would literally be clearing the runway as people were landing their aeroplanes and uh, of fans and things like that. So it was it was a bit wild. You know, there was very little in the way of stopping people just wandering onto the track if they wanted to. Just like in 1992. Well, yeah. Um, so, yeah. They, but they did actually climb over some fences. But before that, it was there was nothing. You know, I, I could go off, wander off and just stand on the edge of the track, um, which I did quite regularly and just watch with a friend of mine and, and sort of wave at my dad as, go, as he went past and then went back to the paddock. Great memories. So welcome to the British Grand Prix edition of F1 Nation. We're here with Tom Clarkson. And we have former British Grand Prix winner and Formula One world champion Damon Hill in the other seat. For those of you who are getting confused... It wasn't Damon Hill on last week's show when we were reviewing the Canadian Grand Prix. That was Damon's son, Josh, who I might add, Damon, just very quickly, I thought did a great job. Yeah, I was I was very impressed. I was listening to him and thinking he's, he's actually very intelligent, probably a lot more intelligent than I've ever given him credit for. <laughs> so sorry, Josh, about that. But uh, no, he did a very fine job, I thought. He, he, was, he was on the ball. He, he had some interesting insights. So he is actually, he work, yeah, as you said, he works, he's got a kind of a job now in F1 experiences. So he has to explain the sport to uh, guests, paying guests and paddock club members and stuff. And I had a funny moment because uh, at Bahrain, he was, I was wandering around the track late at night and I could hear this voice I recognised on the back of a truck going around with some, some, uh, some of the guests. And it, sure enough, it was Josh as he went past. And so I shouted out to him, hey, Josh. And all the guests went, hi, and spotted me and went, hello. And then as he went off into the, into the night, I could hear him go, that's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't embarrass him oh. at work. Sorry about that, Josh. Anyway. Well, it's nice to see another generation of Hills working in Formula One. But let's get your thoughts very quickly on what happened in Montreal just just how good was Max Verstappen? Uh, well, absolutely brilliant. Calm and cool and absolutely didn't put a foot wrong, did he? he? He always looked like he had something in hand. But in truth, he really was under pressure, I think, the last uh, however many, what, 10 or so laps, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, with uh, Carlos all over him, really looking at every opportunity, but just never quite having that w what he needed. The traction out of the last hairpin was uh, was the problem. It seemed to me he just couldn't get that last corner, get close enough with the DRS, or the DRS wasn't as effective enough because there was a tailwind, wasn't it? Anyway, Max withstood all that pressure and looked like a very very collected and mature driver as as jack pointed out he's not inexperienced you know he's young but he's been driving all his life and he knew exactly what to do 
But what else could Carlos Sainz have done? I mean, okay, he wasn't getting the traction out of that hairpin, but yeah. you know, it was there are sixteen corners around the lap. Is there anything else he could have done? Very little, I think. I mean, he needed to get right under his wing through the final chicane before the hairpin. He needed to get on his tail there. He got a good DRS, but then for some reason he wasn't able to stick on his tail coming out of that corner. And then as he went down to the hairpin, he just Max managed to have just that bit more gap and the Ferrari just didn't manage to put the tyre down. Maybe it's because being in the dirty air for that long, he had cooked his rear tyres a bit more than Max had. Max had better traction, slow speed out of that corner. But Max has found something because he dominated that weekend, didn't he, with with no sign of Sergio looking to be threatening. And in qualifying, in that, you know, really tricky qualifying, wasn't it? He was more than half a second faster than the field. They've done something. I I get the feeling they've done something to to help him because he's not the sort of person who would have taken being out qualified by Sergio lying down. So I think that they've tried to work on giving him what he really needs. And it could be that they've helped the front end of the car. It looked like he got rid of some of that understeer and he could um, do his wonders. Well, Silverstone is a very different track to the the last three that we've been on. Monaco, Baku and Montreal on the bounce. I feel like we're going back to a traditional racetrack, very much in keeping with Barcelona earlier in the year. Can we expect anything different? It's like Barcelona in that it's got higher average speed corners. They're very, very few, very slow corners at Silverstone. So like that's like Barcelona. But Barcelona is, is relatively smooth compared to Silverstone. Everyone keeps talking about it being smooth. And I, I, I always thought Silverstone was one of the bumpiest places. I mean, it's got yumps, you know, it's got really heavy bounce. So when you go through Beckett's, the car is really moving up and down. I know Cops is relatively smooth, but they keep talking about it. And it, part of the conversation is in the hope that the cars that suffer worse with the porpoising stroke bouncing um, will be better. We think the Mercedes is going to be more competitive here, but it's going to have to be really competitive to beat the Ferraris or the Red Bulls. You say it's not smooth, but it was resurfaced a couple of years ago. And, and mm. I think uh, the word on the street is that it's much better, certainly than it was in your day. I'm, I'm clinging on to that because I think if we get a smoother racetrack, then we're going to end up with a closer race. I think we're going to see, you know, Ferrari and Red Bull achieve their lap times in a very different way. The straight line speed on the Red Bull superior to that of the Ferrari. And then, of course, what can Mercedes do? If they can get that W13 into the right window, as we saw with both of their drivers in Barcelona, I think they're going to give them a run for their money. You really do. I, I'm, I'm a little, you're a little bit more optimistic than I am. I, I have to say, I, I, I just think that to find the gains, and of course, the problem is bringing forward modifications now is really tricky. You can see that actually the development war thing has stopped that people are being very very uh, circumspect and and careful about bringing forward their bits and bobs that they've worked on um, to make the car faster i mean there's there's not many upgrade packages coming i think alpine have got one haven't they coming to silverstone i disagree you say that the the upgrade war has stopped it's still very much raging it's just that we're seeing instead of parts being introduced at every race, we're just seeing bigger upgrade packages introduced once every four races because of the cost cap, of course. So there's huge pressure on the teams to make those upgrade packages work. And of the top teams, Red Bull and Ferrari, every time they've introduced something new this year, it has worked. Ferrari bringing some new bits to Silverstone. Uh, Mercedes doing the same 
I think now, Damon, is a very good time to introduce Mercedes Trackside Engineering Director. Andrew Shovlin is with us now. Shove, great to have you on the show. We've just been talking upgrades. Please tell us that Mercedes have loads and loads coming for Silverstone. Yeah, we have we have got a package that we've been working on. And the reality is we've been updating the car pretty pretty much every race, but fairly sort of subtle updates in the in the recent ones, trying a few experiments. But Silverstone is one of the target events for us where we're going to bring a, a bigger, more visible package. And ho- hopefully we'll make a step forward, which is uh, what we've been trying hard to do for the last few months. Andrew, you said uh, a, a more visible package. That's exciting. That sort of sounds like, um, you know, it could be side pods or something. something no, not, 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 not quite that radical, but um, we're looking at different front wings, rear wings. Um, there'll be some changes on the floor. Um, so a few other, other bits and bobs. But a lot of the development this year is going on under the cars where um, people don't see it. Um, but this will be uh, a bit more obvious to uh, to those looking, and and it'll take you closer to the front, right? Well, we hope so. The I mean, this, this team's had a very good record of bringing updates that have worked, and you know, literally year after year, everything we made, we put on the car, uh, it seemed to deliver. And with these latest regulations, that hasn't hasn't been the same. We've been working quite hard to understand those issues, and we've made a fair bit of uh, progress. And there are some bits that you're you're more wary of, others that you can probably be a bit more sure it'll deliver as expected. But when we don't yet have the level of confidence to say we you know we can go back to our old method of operation where we just bolt things on and get on with the weekend, we will be um, checking that this is performing as we as we hoped it, it it should. But as I said, we've we've learned quite a lot in recent months, so we're um, we're optimistic that it'll be a step forward. Hopefully, the circuit will suit us as well. And we have been making progress. It's just that it's, uh, you know, everyone's developing and it's not been uh, not been so visible. Andrew, what's that done to the team? You mentioned confidence and you mentioned normally being used to making an upgrade and then seeing the result happen immediately. But this car has been a bit of a conundrum for you. So what's that done to the mindset of the of the engineers? Have people been running around uh, tearing up bits of paper? And- <laughs> it, I mean, from an engineering point of view, it, it's a very difficult but very interesting challenge. But aside from that, you've sort of got this, you know, this cultural element where the team was used to a very long period of success. Everything that we were doing was working well. Um, And this is, you know, without doubt, the biggest technical challenge that we faced um, in the last sort of seven or eight years. And it, you know, it is it is testing the team, but you've just got to get stuck into the engineering and progress in Formula One is it's all about ideas and learning. Is that rate rate of learning is actually one of the key things. It may be that the car that we we made has been more difficult to solve these problems with than than some of our competitors, or it could be that they they saw some of these issues coming. But we, I mean, we are in, we're enjoying the challenge. It would be great to get back to um, being in a position where we can challenge for pole and and win races. But there's no alternative but to fix these problems. So that's yeah. that's what we need to get stuck into. Without without putting too much pressure and emphasis on Mercedes, because it's all been very obvious that the, the car's troublesome and the drivers are having a hard time and everything. So we know that it, within a Formula One team like yours, you're, you, know, you have a method and you will resolve the problem. But I mean, as a general change in the regulations, 
up and down the paddock with the other teams because you talk as well with other uh, designers and engineers. What's the general feeling? Has this been a good step for Formula One? Has it? What has it improved the overall new new concept of these cars? I think if you look at the the following, the the cars are better at following closely. Now that I, I don't know whether the racing, you're probably better to comment on whether the racing has been better, but it does seem that you can sit much closer in a in a low speed corner, which has helped us where we've qualified badly. And for you know a lot of the races, we were qualifying in in and amongst the midfield, but probably the fastest um, you know the fastest car there, so able to make a bit of progress on the Sunday. I mean, in terms of the regulations overall, they're they're not perfect. There's a few issues to solve with the fact that the cars are running too close to the ground. It is uncomfortable for the drivers. But as I said, our focus as engineers is is on making sure we can at least do as good a job as Red Bull and Ferrari, who've certainly had a better start to these these regulations. But these are you know these are in place for the next four years. So as I said, there's no alternative but for us to get to grips with them and um, and make the most of it. Let's talk about some positives to do with the W13. We've actually got George Russell on F1 Beyond the Grid this week. And here's what he had to say about the good bits of your car. Silverstone should be a bit smoother, a bit more of a high-speed circuit. Um, It'll play slightly more in our favour, but ultimately Red Bull and Ferrari will still be ahead. There are clearly strengths within our car. We're clearly good in our race pace, relatively speaking. I think we're the only team to close the gap to the front runners on a Sunday rather than the gap expanding. And when it's in the right window, the actual balance through the corners is pretty nice to drive. But when you're going down the straights and your teeth are rattling out and you're feeling every single tiny stone on the track and it rattles through your body, you're sort of at one with the car. You're trying to be silky smooth with the tires and your steer and your braking inputs. But when you're just being shaken around, it sort of feels like you're on an uncomfortable roller coaster. So he calls it a roller coaster show, but um, can you elaborate on some of the things your car does well? Well, I think George touched, touched on one of the big ones there, which is the race pace. And we, we've always had a big focus on that. It's nice, it's nice to get the car on pole on a Sunday, but the reality is if you haven't got the fastest race car, it's actually quite hard to, uh, to hold it there. And you see a bit of that dynamic with um, with Red Bull and Ferrari, so that element is good, and it's you know it's one of the hardest things to actually put right. There's there's quite a few tricks to getting the car to go quicker in qualifying, in terms of how you set it up, but fundamentally getting that that right is key. George also touched on on the ride there, which um, obviously they uh, strapped into the car. They really do experience the the problems of the car firsthand there. And it's an area that we're working hard to improve because it's not right that they're, um, you know, getting out of the car and they've got sore backs and they're uh, having to get physio over the next few days. We do need to we do need to get on top of that. But in Barcelona, uh, which is a smooth circuit, those issues weren't really evident at all. The car, you know, suddenly we we'd, um, made some progress with an update kit that we bought to Barcelona. The car wasn't bouncing around all the way down the straights there. And we thought, great, we can now go and get stuck into the normal development. The issue was with then the three street circuits that we uh, got to, we very bumpy tracks, and it was harder for us to run the car where we wanted to. Those circuits just highlighted that we've got more work to do. But we've talked about the problem here a bit like 
peeling an onion, you sort of remove one layer and then there's another and there's another. You know, all, all we can do really is sort of uncover the next problem, engineer solutions, try and understand it and try and try and bring bits to the car to uh, to help. You've tried some experimental setups and, and it seems like Lewis has been doing the bulk. I've heard, heard him say that perhaps George would like to do the experimental setups in uh, after the mid-season break. But, you know, he has gone off and, 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 and has he put his hand up? He's volunteered, has he, for this mission to go and try and find a setup? It, I mean, we, we try and um, share the development items out across the two cars. The, the reality is, uh, at the moment, we don't necessarily know which will be quicker and which will be slower. So we can't easily sort of make sure that we're sharing that kind of pain, if you call it that, of of who can test what on a Friday. And I think also Lewis, if he's not able to put it on pole, he wants to try different things. And his mindset going into qualifying has often been to, um, you know, to go a bit more radical on the setup to try and push the car somewhere that we've not had it before. And that hasn't always sort of paid off in terms of where he's qualified on Saturday relative to George but at at the heart of it it's you know his desire to help the team move forward to help the team improve and when the car isn't where you want it he's actually always quite you know quite keen to do something different to try and uh, try and find a direction that we can we can exploit and there's lots of times in the in the past where that approach of his has has paid dividends. Angie, I've got to ask this question now because you know you're you're making progress. You explain you're working so hard on everything set up and design and bringing bringing updates and stuff. Can you win a Grand Prix this year? Well, we've we've got the mindset that we can win Grand Prix this year. We've seen that the race pace hasn't been too far off at a, at a few. I mean, Canada, there was still a significant gap there, but it was a lot smaller than it had been in Monaco and Baku. Um, in Barcelona, the race pace was pretty strong, and one of the frustrations of this car is you keep seeing these sort of glimpses of performance that that pop up that that make you want to keep working on it and make you want to keep developing it and uh, that's one of the reasons that that we you know we're not prepared to just stop and say right let's shift the focus to 2023 we're still trying to uh, get the performance out of it but I'd like to think we can win a race this year. And I know that the people that I work with and the people within the team uh, have the mindset that we can win this year. When your design guys were penning the W13, did they think they were going out on a limb? I mean, were there lots of different options or, or was this from a very early point, the design direction you wanted to take? Well, all I mean, all teams were given the same start point this year, which is very unusual because ordinarily you just get the sort of rule boxes that gives you your freedom to design your car. But actually this year, people were given a, a surface that Formula One had come up with. So that, that was what you saw as the show cars, basically. And people were then developing from there. Now, we're always looking for opportunities within the regulations, and, and it didn't start looking like it does. That was something that we, you know, we uncovered during the development and decided that it had potential. Now, maybe that has, you know, caused problems in other areas um but as i said the car you know keeps showing you these sort of glimpses that there's some performance in there if we can just fix a few more problems and make a little bit more progress i think it looks like quite a fast car <laughs> it's the if we could you know if we could just get the uh, the ride a bit better the bouncing a bit better i think it does still have potential questions please damon hill do you think it's time maybe you should change your approach to racing <laughs> Well, I don't even know how to start answering that question, but anyway. 
Some more questions, please. Damon, were you happy with the start? Damon Hill, congratulations for this winning demo. You must be satisfied. Any questions? Yeah. Well, Damon, it must have been absolutely gutting that last couple of laps. Damon, it looked like you had it really under control. Some more questions, please. Damon Hill has done a fantastic job. Yes, this is where you can put your questions to a British Grand Prix winner and a Formula One world champion. Here's the first one. Howdy, F1 Nation gang. This is Arthur from Wyoming, USA. Um, Kind of in the newer crop of viewers in the podcast has been great for learning the sport and all the characters kind of in the sport. So thanks so much for that. Uh, Damon, I had a question about tire wear. Um, As one of the newer fans to F1, I don't always understand... Uh, how a driver can drive differently to save the wear on their tires. Um, is it just staying off the curbs? Is it braking in different ways? How as a driver do you go about um, you you know wearing up those tires less and, and keeping them for more laps? Thanks. Arthur, you are in luck because we have with us today the man who knows all those answers. He's not a driver. I when I just, just ought to explain why. These tires are very different to the ones that I used to race on. I look at these cars going around and I'm thinking, what are they doing? Why are they dithering? I mean, we had the fantastic one with Fernando who backed up everybody at Monaco, saved his tyres and then just legged it at the end. And um, uh, what's going on? You know, years ago, you didn't need to do the tyre management. And the reason that drivers do it now is it's the, it's the fastest way to drive a stint. So if you do qualifying pace lap after lap, you'll find very quickly that your degradation could be easily a second, maybe even more than if you're driving the tyres sensibly. And when you're looking at, well, what, what does driving them sensibly mean, which I think was the, the question from Arthur, um, is very much about where are you putting the energy into them how can you efficiently reduce the energy going into the tires but still be doing decent lap times and in terms of the you know the tires getting hot well that's generally the high speed corners where massive force and energy are going into them there's a lot of sliding and that's where you can take a lot of temperature out by just backing off the pace a little bit from there on the straights they're actually cooling down quite nicely so that's their opportunity to reset And then also you're just looking at controlling the wheel slip. So you'll get a lot of teams talking to drivers about traction metrics. And that's just reporting to them how, you know, how much sliding you're actually getting coming out of the corners. And the hotter the rubber is, the more it wears. And it's it's about controlling the temperature to control that uh, wear rate. But I I mean, suppose back in your day, it was all done by by feel, wasn't it? Certainly was. I absolutely love the idea of asking the driver to drive sensibly. You know, do you mind just driving sensibly while you're in this Grand Prix? When we first sort of discovered that tyre management in a race was a, was an effective thing, probably in the mid-2000s, and I was working with, with Jensen at the time, and Jensen had quite a good feel for it. But when you, were, when you said to him, right, actually just back off by three or four tenths of a second, lap on lap, he was a bit like, why would I want to do that? Why do I want to? Because his inherent driving style was, was one that looked after the tyres quite nicely. But this concept that you you back off for a few laps and then after 10, you've actually turned it into a pace advantage. And if you want to do a really long stint, that's that's the way to do it. And these days, it is, it is just a different skill that the drivers have to have. 
but you have you have information we never had. I mean, you can see the tire temperature from from the garage, can't you? What parts of the tire can you see? Surface, side. The main ones you're looking at are the surface of the tire, so you can kind of see how how hot it is, and that's the one that will flash up when you get wheel spin on corner exits or a snap of oversteer. You'll see the surface get get hot very quickly. We're also measuring what we call the bolt temperature, but that's that's measuring the inside surface of the tire, but it gives you an indication of how hot the rubber is right in the middle of the tire. And that's a more sort of steady progression that you'll track over the course of a, of a few laps. And that's the one that you t- if you're going to get blistering, it's generally because you've got the bulk temperature too high. And we're not just measuring single points. You can measure an array of points across the, um, across the tire, but it allows you to get a lot of information about what's going on. And, also, it's not just that you use it live. It's that if you had high degradation in a race or you had high wear, you can go back and understand, well, where was it coming from and why Why did we have the issue? Shove, are these 2022 tyres, the 18-inch Pirellis, are they more robust and is the longevity better than what we had last year? You do seem to be able to lean on them a bit more. It's not to say that they're they're always robust. The front tyre is quite, quite a weak tyre this year, which is one of the things that Pirelli will be looking to improve in future because often you you find you get this graining across the front that means drivers are suddenly having to back off an awful lot to uh, to make the stint lengths but that aside in in normal racing it does seem that you can sit more closely behind you can push a bit harder um, and they are a bit more uh, resilient to that ah uh, ask damon is turning into our shove this week dh well he's much more at the you know the cutting edge of it all now. I mean, it, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that in our day we could push all the time. You still had to kind of feel, but you, it, there was there wasn't the science behind it, and there wasn't the engineers going, "You will go faster overall if you don't, you know, knacker the tires." But I mean, you know, you could see it with some drivers who were brilliant, like Alan Prost. You know, was great at tickling the tires, and 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 people like and Nicky Lauda and stuff. And then there were the more brutal drivers that would have tire problems. A lot of it, as well, is the car design trying to. Um you know, you now design cars to try and look after the tyres. So that's one area that that does help. It's not, you know, it's not all the driver. Hey, hang on. What do you mean? I, I don't, <laughs> I, I, they always say that. They're engineers are <laughs> always trying to take the credit. <laughs> oh, Arthur in Wyoming. I hope you've got, uh, you've got answers there to your question. Let's now throw it on to question two. Hi, Damon. Dean from Australia. My question is regarding nervous toilet breaks. With all the hydration required and all that nerve, how do drivers balance that last trip to the gents? Dean, you've come up with a, a very interesting uh, and, and unusual question, but it's a very important one to us drivers because you're absolutely right. You have to stay hydrated. And so before you get to the race, you you, you drink, make sure you properly fluid, you fill that with fluid and stuff because you do sweat an awful lot. And you've got about, well, when I was racing, we had about half a litre in a bag somewhere which is a bit like a screen washer bottle uh, in your car and you press a button and it squirts water in your mouth but I, I could ne- by the time it came to me it was also lukewarm and horrible but I, I couldn't really drink it much so yeah read, need to be hydrated but they issued some rule about what the dri- they want to have the drivers with an empty bladder uh, for safety reasons um, so that's why they, ha- they have to go to the toilet before uh, and they in between them putting the car on the grid and going to you know actually starting the race they leg it for a quick pee but they're probably 
bursting to go anyway damon um, the inevitable uh, yeah. question no no yes. i never did it you never I know did what it? you're gonna okay. ask no Shove, have you ever worked with a driver who actually couldn't get out of the car in time um i've heard about them i wouldn't like to name any names <laughs> but none of our current ones <laughs> do both of your current guys have a drink system in the car or do they not bother no, they they both run drink systems, and depending on the the track and the weather, they'll they'll vary the amount of fluid um, that they take on board. Technology has not moved on in terms of keeping the drinks cold, because that's one of the uh, common complaints we still get is that it's the temperature of tea. Um, but the reality is there isn't a lot on the car that's you know that's lower than about thirty five or forty degrees centigrade. So finding somewhere to put it where it stays cold is very, very difficult. And also you find they, they often forget to drink. They're so busy in the car and concentrating on the race that, that often you've got to remind the drivers to, uh, to drink periodically. I'm interested to hear that because actually that's, yeah, I found it very difficult to drink when I was driving. I, I just used it to wet my throat, you know, like keep my throat moist, but uh, actually guzzling when you're driving was, was really awkward. Yeah, they, I mean, you don't often find that they're drinking litres of it. As you say, it's just sort of to take the uh, dryness away a bit and and just keep the hydration levels up but we've had a run of really hot races um you know Miami was really hot and Baku was hot and very busy Monaco was hot and and they do lose an awful lot of body weight in those races just from um the sweating and and losing yeah. the water we we notice that Andrew they, are, is it more physical this year are the drivers having to work harder than they they used to because they look sometimes look quite exhausted the, I mean, the G-loading through the corners is very similar. You've got this added thing where they're being shaken around, the car's hitting the ground more, it's a lot lower, and the cars are stiffer. So that adds to the general fatigue. Most of the issues are actually coming about from that. But I think in terms of the, you know, the this power steering weight and the and the G-loading, it's, it's not so different. It's just this added uh, issue with the cars bouncing around. We did have a drink bottle story once in the French Grand Prix. It was really hot. I was racing Michael and the drinks thing didn't work. So I got on the radio as I was coming from a pit stop and said, I haven't got any water. And it was like 40 degrees. It was really, really hot. French Grand Prix. can't remember which year. Anyway. Um, and so I came in, I got water, I'm water. <laughs> I need water. And Patrick Head came out as they were changing the tyres. I opened my visor and lifted my head up and opened my mouth and he poured it down my neck. And then by that, by that time, all the tyres were on and I had to go. So he basically just chucked it down my neck. I don't know why, back of my neck, and, and, and I never got a drink. Anyway, I was quite dehydrated after that one. <laughs> hey, Damon, did Excellent. needing a pee make you drive faster just to get to the end of the race? That's true, yes. I mean, I was, because, yeah, I used to sit there. I, I reckon we all went off like a scoldy cat because we were all dying for a pee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Thanks for your question, Dean. And thank you to you, Andrew, for joining us on the show this week. Fantastic to speak to you and best of luck at Silverstone this weekend. Thank you very much. Yeah, good luck. Well, thanks very much for those really good questions. And if anyone else listening has got some questions they want to put to Ask Damon, then um, put it on a voice note and send it to askdamon at f1.com. Well, Tom, I think Andrew, did, without giving away too much, I mean, obviously he was a bit bullish. He's got some upgrades coming, or the team have, and they think they can win a race. That's their mindset. They think this car's got it. It's somewhere in there. And he, he said he, he thought it looked quick as well. So there's a kind of bit of affection for this car. Then haven't given up and moved on to 2023 just yet. 
And I reckon Lewis is really pushing them as well because he's won a Grand Prix every year of his Formula One career and he won't want 2022 to be the first when he hasn't. So come on, guys, keep pushing. They've got the only, they're only a team with a 100% finishing record at the moment as well. That's true. And George Russell, top five every race. And just, you know, imagine if Lewis won the British Grand Prix just for a second. He's already won this race eight times. I'm looking out my window as we speak, Tom, and I can see the floor is wet, which is the first time I've seen rain for quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. rain would probably really help, wouldn't it? Well, anyway, great to have Andrew on the show. That's almost it for this week. But there is a little bit of other news that we can discuss. Pierre Gasly's been announced as an Alpha Tauri driver for 2023. Funnily enough, Franz Tost actually let that slip in the official press conference in Canada last week. The team were being very amusing about it. They were saying before that press conference, Franz, remember, no bombshells. Just keep it, keep it clean. And then, of course, he then goes and reveals that Pierre Gasly already has a contract for 2023. So they were busy writing press releases straight after that. And Pierre is, yes, uh, staying at AlphaTauri for another year. Great for the team. I'm sure he was probably hoping Mm. uh, to move out of the midfield next year. But what are your thoughts? I think some people think that you've got to keep moving in this game to get noticed, you know. But I think he's probably in a good good place there because if Sergio, his contract finishes uh, after the end of next year, doesn't it? So 2023, so 2024... Pierre might be in the right place. Except, I think, if if he was going to move up to the, the big team, he might have gone there for next year because of Sergio was originally out of contract at the end of this year. So I think Gasly needs to do a Carlos Sainz and move away from the Red Bull family if he's going to move up the grid. But it's a pretty static driver market, actually, it's appearing to be for next year. There's not much movement. So maybe he's thinking, I need to sit tight for 12 months and then make the move at the end of 2023 when it looks like it's all going to open up a little bit more. The problem is this guy, Fernando Alonso, refuses to lie down. He keeps coming back stronger and stronger uh, at age 41. Uh, and we still don't know where he, where he's going yet, do we? You know, you said after the Azerbaijan Grand Prix that you you like uh, the gamesmanship that Fernando's up to. We ought to just ask you then about Canada when he was weaving on the straight and got given a a five second penalty, which dropped him down the order from seventh to ninth. You still like him? Still like all that? Well, he got he got fined, didn't he? So he got I mean, there are limits, obviously. I wouldn't call that gamesmanship. I would call that. Basically, just weaving, <laughs> but um, no, he's uh, he's a tough competitor. He doesn't want to give up an inch, and um, but you know there are limits, definitely. Yeah, so I hope he doesn't. He's not turning into a kind of grumpy old man driver. You know, no, he's been he's been great in interviews this year. I think I think that time away certainly helped him appreciate what he's got in Formula One now, perhaps more than he did first time around, and he still wants it, Damon. He's still. <laughs> His hunger for it, his passion for Formula One still just shines bright. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very evident. Isn't yeah, it? He, yeah. He, he, he likes his job and he likes competing and he's he's got he's still got stuff to give. Now, talking of shining bright, by the way, um, did I see you on the front cover of a magazine recently? Uh, yeah, you're talking about Chap magazine, aren't you? Oh yeah, Champ, Which is, Champ magazine. Well, is I, that's what I said. I said it should have been called Champ magazine. Um, so I made some uh, joke. I hope I haven't upset them, but uh, I said it sh- they, they spelt my name wrong um, because the title of the magazine is actually Chap and it is uh, probably what you'd expect it to be. It's a, it's a magazine for men who like, you know, clothes 
uh, of a kind of certain style, which I, it's not really hipster. It's it's more you know traditional tailoring, and the person who knew how to you know, prune his moustache, people like my dad, you know, and I went to Savile Row and got their suits made uh, beautifully and they love their clothes. And it's a lifestyle little magazine. It's actually quite fun, actually. Yeah, and quite nice to see your face beaming down at you in the newsagent. It's been a while, I guess. Oh, it's in newsagents, is it? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't been to a newsagent for so long and looked at any of the, the magazines. That, uh, anyway, good. Well, I'm glad it's out there. I hope that uh, you know people listening go and have a little look at it and, uh, and find... There's an interview with me, but there's all sorts of really interesting stuff about how to prune yourself up and i mean groom groom not not pruned don't i, I mean, it's groom yeah basically smarten yourself up and think about how you look with your clothes and being a bit of a dandy yeah and get ready for silverstone what does this pre-british grand prix week look like for you damon are you busy or do you just um pretty mad i'm doing some filming tomorrow look well we just come literally come back from goodwood which i limited to just one day um on the saturday um and and then we've got filming for some of the work that goes on the show on the over the weekend and then we're doing another thing the following day probably the opener and so this is all for sky f1's British sky, Grand yeah. Prix. and then i'm up to silverstone and doing something with uh, some f1 employees i think as well and then we get into the show putting the show together which runs over the weekend so it's it's massive i mean we've all been given smarter clothes to wear and we're supposed to you know put on our best show because it is a big event the british grand prix it's it's epic and um you know there's a real buzz buzz to it so exciting 140,000 people going to be turning up on sunday how do you deal with the traffic or do you stay at the track I, I'm going to be staying. I don't. I didn't used to, but uh, I quite got into this uh, renting a, a motorhome and, and going in the BRDC campsite. And uh, you know, we have a little barbecue sometimes. And um, I, I've, I showed uh, David Coulthard how to um, how to barbecue bananas. <laughs> I can't really cook very well, but I can do barbecue bananas with Chantilly cream and maybe a bit of Grand Marnier in it. It's very nice. All right, Damon, who's going to win? Who who is going to be your post race interview on Sunday? Who is who is that person? Who's going to win it? I still think it's gonna it's going to be Charles Leclerc. I probably win this. Will win this race. I think Ferrari might have a better car than Red Bull um, for this one. You never know. It could be Sergio. I mean, it could. I could be the sort of circuit that suits him as well. He, he might do a bit of a fight back. But I, mean, I think it's a must win for Charles Leclerc after all the misfortune he's had. I think he, he, he needs to put a marker in the sand and say, I'm back. And Ferrari needs to have a clean weekend. They're bringing yeah. upgrades. Let's hope they work. And and that we have a proper challenge. Following Grand Prix being Austria, it's almost certainly going to be Max. Winning well, Max is so dominant there. He got the Grand Slam last year, didn't he? Pole, fastest lap, led every lap, won the race. So I think Leclerc needs to strike back right now. And where better than to do it at Silverstone? Yeah. I agree. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. And we'll be back after the British Grand Prix. Yeah, that's right, Damon. We're going to be back on Tuesday, the 5th of July. Myself, Damon and Natalie to break down everything that happens at the British Grand Prix. And make sure you hit the follow button on your podcast app so you get that episode as soon as it's released. F1 Nation is produced by Formula One. And Audio Boom Studios.